Welcome to God is Open. I am your host, Christopher Fisher. Today on God is Open, we are going to be asking the question, can someone tell a coherent narrative of what's happening in the Bible if they're coming to the text with the view that God is immutable, that God is timeless, that God knows the future in exhaustive detail? Can they tell the plot of the Bible in such a way that keeps these attributes in mind? Or does the text, does the narrative force them to tell the story in such a way in which God can change. God is not timeless. God learns new things. Which which is the way that the Bible forces? If any, or, or if it forces one or the other, which way does the Bible force people to talk? And a good way to do this is to look over uh, probably a story or narrative being told by someone who's coming to the Bible with some of these categories in mind. We're going to turn to the Bible Project. The Bible Project is a great video series that tries to go over sections of the Bible uh, bits at a time to explain what's going on in a very graphical way. Uh, graphic as in uh, high production quality. I, I highly recommend that I show my kids these videos. Uh, they're they're great for learning. They're great for overviews. I, I I highly recommend the Romans series to figure out what's going on in the book of Romans. Great for kids and adults alike. Overall, I like this series very much. I think I think though that sometimes their worldview affects how they phrase and talk about the text. I think that becomes apparent in Genesis uh, chapter one through eleven, which we're going to be discussing today. We're going to see what they say and how they say it and then ask ourselves why would they say it in that sort of way because what what's the narrative of what are their presuppositions that they're coming to the narrative about in order to create their own narrative that they're telling us what is driving them motivating them to say the things that they do and do they talk about god in ways in which god is mutable in which God learns new things. How do they discuss God? And these are these are views that they do not hold. I don't know about immutability, but they definitely hold the classical idea that God knows all future events in detail. So we're going to go ahead and hit play and see what they say. It's the first book of the Bible, and its storyline divides into two main parts. There's chapters 1 through 11, which tell the story of God and the whole world. And then there's chapters 12 through 50, which zoom in and tell the story of God and just one man, Abraham, and then his family. And these two parts are connected by a hinge story at the beginning of chapter 12. And this design, it gives us a clue to how to understand the message of the book as a whole and how it introduces the story of the whole Bible. So the book begins with God taking the disorder and the darkness described in the second sentence of the Bible, and God brings out of it order and beauty and goodness. He makes a world where life can flourish. And God makes these... So I'm going to stop us right there. So it seems that they take a very biblically literate 
view of Genesis 1, in which the, the first verse of the Bible, Genesis 1-1, is either a, a, a story title or it's an overview of what's going to happen next, just as we see in Genesis 2-4, where these are the generations uh, of the earth in which God created. Um, it, it's an overview of what's going to happen next, a summation of what the story is about. And so it seems to be very biblically literate what they are saying here. Uh, that doesn't mean that just as 1-1 is forced to be that, I just think that's the most natural reading. In uh, the Hebrew Bible, that's the way that uh, they put the punctuation in, in the Masoretic text. And so I think that's the most probable. It's not to say that you can't read Creation Ex Nihilio from Genesis 1-1. Uh, as uh, there's a, what, a Dallas Theological Seminary, I took an online course from them about Genesis, and the guy said, yeah, this this is definitely not about creation ex nihilo. We could get that from other verses. This is more likely an overview text. And so don't think that if you hold creation ex nihilo that that entire concept is destroyed if you don't have Genesis 1-1 as your proof text. We don't want to be James Whiting things where we... We hold on to specific readings of specific texts because we really need those proof texts and we don't want to lose a proof text. We don't want to be doing that. But uh, that very biblically literate, uh, this Bible project, and I like the way they phrase this. But we're going to go on and see how they talk about man. Creatures called humans, or Adam in Hebrew. He makes them in his image, which has to do with their role and purpose in God's world. So the humans are made to be reflections of God's character out into the world, and they're appointed as God's representatives to rule his world on his behalf, which in context means to harness all of its potential, to care for it, and make it a place where even more life can flourish. So they take this phrase being made in the image of God and they point to character, which definitely could be a part of it. There's entire books written about what it means to be made in the image of God. Of course, the Calvinists, their common thing is saying, oh, you're trying to make God in our image. Yeah, well, yeah, we're made in the image of God. There are, are some overlaps. You, you, The Calvinists, they do not believe that we are made in the image of God. I asked I asked a Calvinist uh, once when uh, Jesus said, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. In what way does seeing Jesus show you the Father? And he, he didn't have an answer. That was pretty funny. But Calvinists don't believe we're made in the image of God. And so their constant criticism of open theists is open theists are making God into the image of man. As if that just doesn't show. Uh, they're, they're not laying their cards on the table saying they absolutely do not believe we're made in God's image right? They, they want to distance us rather than bring us together, God and man. In Genesis 1, it seems that God is talking to other divine creatures, making man in our image, seeing if there's any objections. The angels are made at this point. The angels apparently have the form of humans. We see God actually walking through the garden in Genesis 3 in a form of human. And if you do a search on the word for image, you come across a lot of idol imagery idols are made in the images of various gods and so i i don't think i don't think the entire idea of image is all non-physical i think that is an aspect that we're functional rational creatures which can act and decide and that we have this inherent value that we are as these guys say reflections of god and god's character i think there is though a physical aspect god can have bodies 
in the Semitic mindset. In, in the Hebrew Bible, God can have various bodies in various shapes, sizes, and forms. And a lot of those uh, representations of God's bodies in the Bible are human-shaped. So I, I, I don't think this is all uh, just regulated to character. I think there's probably physical aspects going on as well. But we're going to go ahead and hit play and see what else they say. God blesses the humans. It's a key word in this book. And he gives them a garden, it's like a place from which they begin starting to build this new world. Now, the key is that the humans have a choice about how they're going to go about building this world. And that's represented by the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Up till now, God has provided and defined what is good and what is not good. But now God is giving the humans the dignity and the freedom of a choice. Are they going to trust God's definition of good and evil, or are they going to seize autonomy and define good and evil for themselves? And the stakes are really high. To rebel against God is to embrace death because you're turning away from the giver of life himself. This is represented by the tree of life. And so look at how he's reading into the text going on here. So if we turn to Genesis 2, in which we're introduced to the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, uh, we, we get the first glimpse in 2.9. And out of the ground the Lord God made to spring up every tree that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was in the midst of the garden and the tree of knowledge of good and evil. And then God takes man and he places man in the garden and then gives man one command. Genesis 2.15, the Lord God took man and put him in the garden of Eden to work and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded man saying, you may surely eat of all, all the trees of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so apparently Adam had access to the tree of life. He could eat of it freely. These are divine trees. Uh, assumably, when God's walking through the garden, God can eat of any tree as well and eats of the tree of life. Assumably, uh, other divine creatures walk through the garden, maybe eating from the tree of life. It seems to be a nice garden. It doesn't seem necessarily that these trees are put in the garden to, for the specific purpose of giving Adam one initial test and a test anyways if you're talking about god testing to see if people are going to do something that's open theism you're talking about god in ways in which god does not know the future but i myself i don't think necessarily that these trees are present in the gardens as a test i think that's a narrative that we bring to the text because we want to see the bible and all the different details of it this is like an important event the fall of man and so the tree is given this, this special test relevancy that God, this is man's first test to see if man is, is going to be good and, and do the things that God says. And, and then man fails and, and, and he failed his first test. I, I don't see God's motivations being exclaimed in Genesis or the rest of the Bible. So that seems to be a narrative that we bring to the test for of reasons or that we bring to the text for reasons reasons that are motivated by what we want the Bible, how we want the Bible to play out. It could it could be very easily that's just a tree, and the tree's there for specific other purpose, maybe for other divine creatures. Remember in Job, and Job's complaining about his own situation, and God's response is to take Job around the world and say, you're just a minor element in this world. There, There's grander and greater things going on. It's not all about you. Not everything's about you, Job. And so that maybe maybe we should keep that in mind. Not necessarily everything that goes on in the Bible is about 
us. But I, I can see why they do it. They want the grand narrative, and this is their introductory act. And so everything needs to be assigned a reason and a meaning. And the tree of life is there as a reward, and the tree of knowledge of good and evil is there as a test. And then man fails the test, which makes his fall even deeper. I, I just don't think we find that in the narrative. We're coming, we're adding that to the narrative. And so in chapter 3, a, a mysterious figure, a snake, enters into the story. The snake's given no introduction other than it's a creature that God made. And it becomes clear that it's a creature in rebellion against God, and it wants to lead the humans into rebellion and their death. The I think all of that is accurate because you do see the snake getting punishment for its acts. I like how they don't refer to the snake as Satan, which is not at all apparent in the text of Genesis. It's a later interpretation that we see coming maybe from uh, the book of uh, wisdom, maybe, and maybe perhaps from the book of Revelation might be referring to the snake as uh, Satan. There's other readings for those texts as well, so it's, it's not quite clear who this snake creature is. But we'll hit play. Snake tells a different story about the tree and the choice. It says that seizing the knowledge of good and evil are not going to bring death, that it's actually the way to life and becoming like God themselves. Now, the irony of this is tragic because we know the humans, they're already like God. They were made to reflect God's image. But instead of trusting God, the humans seize autonomy. They take the knowledge of good and evil for themselves and in an instant, the whole story spirals out of control. The first casualty is... So I, th I think this tends to be sem somewhat of a misreading of what's going on in Genesis 3 because God, uh, yeah, they, they talk about this in Genesis 3.22, then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us in knowing good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and also take of the tree of life and eat forever, then we're going to expel him. And so the tree of knowledge of good and evil did apparently impart some aspects of the divine that Adam didn't previously have uh, depart or impart them to him and his wife. And so the snake wasn't incorrect in what he was saying necessarily, He, but he was in rebellion. These are things that he shouldn't have been doing. This is not part of God's plan and God did not want this to happen, but but uh, to phrase this as being ironic because Adam's already in God's image, he seems to have lacked, Adam seems to have lacked elements that would make him more godlike. Apparently, one of them is this knowledge of good and evil, which apparently leads to some sort of uh, response in Adam and Eve and covering themselves up in shame. So it seems like they are in a state of probably childhood innocence. This might be a coming of age story for them. They have reached out. Uh, they have uh, violated God's laws or rules, and they have come to this awakening sense. This is a childhood awake. There's, there's plenty of coming of age movies. We could see what's going on here. Adam and Eve are coming into their own. They're growing up. Uh, they're, they're learning about the real world. That's what, that's what appears to be going on here. That the snake is not wrong at what he says, but he states the truth in such a way to uh, subvert God, which that's the real problem. It's human relationships. The man and the woman, they suddenly realize how vulnerable they are. Now, they can't even trust each other. And so they make clothes and they hide their bodies from one another. 
The second casualty is that intimacy between God and the humans is... They can't trust each other, so they have to wear clothes. So uh, you could wear nothing around the people you trust. I don't know if that's our takeaway. Probably this knowledge of good and evil just kind of shows them shame and humility. And it's nothing necessarily about breaking trust. Lost. So they go and run and hide from God. And then when God finds them, they start this game of blame shifting about who rebelled first. Now, right here, the story stops. And there's a series of short poems where God declares to the snake and then to the humans the tragic consequences of their actions. God first tells the snake that despite its apparent victory, it is destined for defeat to eat dust. God promises that one day a seed or a descendant will come from the woman who's going to deliver a lethal strike to the snake's head, which sounds like great news, but this victory is going to come with a cost because the snake too will deliver a lethal strike to the descendant's heel as it's being crushed. All right, let's see if the text says anything like that. And we're going to scroll up. We're in Genesis 3. And uh, God is interacting with man in, in Genesis 3.11, 3.10. It's funny that they show the cloud. God is speaking from a cloud in their text where it specifically says that God is walking among the trees in Genesis Genesis what uh, 3.7 or 3.8. 3.8. Uh, they heard the sound of the Lord walking in the garden. And uh, there's a cloud in the video. But. Other than that, God says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed you are above all livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go, the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and woman. They say that the snake is destined to one day be crushed and and uh, the, the woman's seed is destined to one day come crush the surface or the serpent, but at a dangerous, deadly cost. Uh, uh, is that what's going on here? I will put enmity between you and the woman. Between your offspring and her offspring, he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. Um, That just sounds like general enmity between man and snake. Uh, Any any offspring from the woman. Of course, the seed is in the singular, but that you're allowed to do that in the Hebrew. Use a singular for a general, general concept or idea. It happens, but people want to take this and have this refer to Jesus. They want this to be a prophecy that Jesus is one day going to crush all his enemies. He's going to crush Satan, which apparently the snake represents Satan. Apparently the snake is Satan and the seed is Jesus. And this is a a prophecy of Jesus from the beginning. I don't think that's the most uh, honest and accurate reading. You don't see this being referred to as being Jesus elsewhere in the Bible. It's something that we we want to impose on the text, and the text doesn't demand it, and it doesn't sound like it. It doesn't sound like this is about destiny. It doesn't sound like these are about fatal blows. This sounds like general enmity between snakes and man. I don't like snakes. I uh, that snakes are cool and all, but uh, I don't want to find one in the wild. And then there's like a rattlesnake, and it's rattling. Snakes are deadly. Snakes are deadly. Vipers are deadly. And in the in the start of the book, uh, did God know? It recounts this uh, soldier who was in, I think, a village in Afghanistan. He's trying to interact with this little girl, and and uh, she she's taken aback and she steps back. And there's a snake in the bush behind her, which which bites her and kills her. And uh, so the guy he loses his faith in God in part because God's going to be allowing children to die by snakes. So snakes are deadly. I, th- I think this is a description of 
man's classical, our, our natural enmity with serpents, our natural hatred of snakes and snakes, their natural hatred of humans and killing humans throughout history. I think that's, that's instead what's going on here. But because we are coming to the text with this idea that the Bible must fit this grand narrative which accumulates at Jesus and Jesus is the pinnacle, then then all the stories in the Bible must be pointing that way. And yeah, they might be pointing that way, not necessarily in a telic fashion, maybe like an ebatic, where certain things happen again and again, and that points to the truth value of those things. But I don't think this is a direct prophecy of Jesus. I think that's very much reading into this text. But we're going to move on and see what else he says. I think he's using his theology to drive the narrative rather than reading this out of the text here. Very mysterious promise of this wounded victor. But in the flow of the story so far, you see this is an act of God's grace. The humans, they've just rebelled. And what does God do? He promises to rescue them. But this doesn't erase the consequences of the human's decision. So God informs them that now every aspect of their life together at home and out in the field, it's going to be fraught with grief and pain because of the rebellion, all leading to their death. From here, the story then spirals downward. Chapters 3 through 11, they trace the widening ripple effect of the rebellion and of human relationships fracturing at every level. So there's a story about two brothers, Cain and Abel. Cain's so jealous of his brother that he wants to murder him. And God warns him not to give in to the temptation, but he does anyway. He murders him in the field. So Cain then goes on to build a city where violence and oppression reign. And this is all epitomized in the story of Lamech. He's the first man in the Bible to have more than one wife. He's accumulating them like property. And then he goes on to sing a short song about how he's more violent and vengeful than Cain ever was. After this, we get an odd story about the sons of God, which... I like their little commentary there about Lamech where they say, oh, he's accumulating wives. And then he shows all these women in chains as if women wouldn't naturally uh, flock to a powerful man. I, I think that uh, I did, Abraham Abraham had uh, a lot of wives. David had a lot of wives. Solomon, I, I don't think it'd be accurate to show them in chains. That uh, might might not be a good thing to do could refer to evil angelic beings, or it could refer to ancient kings who claimed that they descended from the gods. And like Lamech, they acquire as many wives as they wanted, and they produce the Nephilim, these great warriors of old. Whichever view is right, the point is that humans are building kingdoms that fill God's world with violence and even more corruption. In response, we're told that God is broken with grief. Humanity is ruining his good world and they're ruining each other. And so out of a passion to protect the goodness of his world, he washes it clean of humanity's evil with a great flood. But he protects one blameless human, Noah, and his family, and he commissions him as a new Adam. He repeats the divine blessing and commissions him to go out into the world. And So where in the text of Genesis 6 do we find this idea that God's purpose in the flood is to wash his world and cleanse his world of this evil? I, I don't think that we... We find that like this is a washing, it's like a restart, and that's God's motivation. God's motivation is actually told to us in the text of Genesis 6. And the Lord regretted that he had made man on earth and it grieved him to his heart. So the Lord said, God's going to give us his motivations. 
I will blot out man whom I have created from the face of the land, man and animal and creeping things. So who's God destroying? As we learn later uh, when he's talking to Noah, all flesh, all flesh, even the animals. So it's not about necessarily just man's sin. The animals themselves might be part of this broken creation that God regrets creating. And God says he's going to do all this. He's going to blot them all out. For I am sorry that I have made him. So God's intention is not, oh, I want to make the world peaceful again. Oh, I want to make the world good again. God's motivation is, I wish I never made these creatures. So I'm just going to kill them all. That's God's motivation. But because people want to come to the text of the Bible with these presuppositions in hand, oh, God must be having a grander narrative in mind. God God uh, definitely wants Jesus to come at some point, redeem humanity, and that's God's eternal plan, eternal plan from even before Genesis 3, but God describes that in Genesis 3, sending Jesus to die for our sins. Uh, this can't be an actual regret in God. It can't be that God's destroying the world because he wishes he didn't make man. That can't be God's motivation. And so a different motivation has to be assigned to God. God needs to be cleansing the world. God needs to be just getting rid of some of the sin. And then uh, his, his motivation is to restart the world. Um, I don't know with what in mind, because all of that sounds like, what are you doing? You're just creating a world again that that's going to fall into corruption and sin again. Uh, God doesn't have real motivations if you come to this text with the idea that God knows all the future. It can't be a learning moment for God, as the text describes, that God wants to destroy the world, decides not to destroy all the world, and then at the end of the story learns that man is always going to be like this, so changes his standards. This can't be character development for God. It has to be part of this grand, unchanging narrative when you're coming to the text, if you have these classical ideas of God in your mind. Uh, even then, even then, the way you describe what's happening falls apart. God is cleansing the world for why? Why? What's going on here? What? Why is this happening? What's, what's God's motivation for cleansing the world, especially a world that falls again into decay and destruction? Why does God kill all the flesh of all the world, all the animals and all the birds? All flesh that lives gets destroyed. Why in your narrative does that happen? And it, you, you do see their narrative start to appear. You see what they're trying, their, their grand plot of the Bible up here when they're describing this. So our hopes are really high, but then Noah fails too, and also in a garden. He goes and he plants a vineyard, and he gets drunk out of his mind. And then one of his sons, Ham, does something shameful to his father in the tent. And so here we have our new Adam, naked and ashamed, just like the first and the downward spiral begins again. It all leads to the foundation of the city of Babylon. The people of ancient Mesopotamia, they come together around this new technology they have, the brick. And they can make cities and towers bigger and faster than anybody's ever done before. And they want to build a new kind of tower that will reach up to the gods and they will make a great name for themselves. It's an image of human rebellion and arrogance. It's the garden rebellion now writ large. And so God humbles their pride and scatters them.
Now, this is a diverse group of stories, but you can see they're all exploring the same basic point. God keeps giving humans the chance to do the right thing with his world, and humans keep ruining it. And these stories are making a claim that we live in a good world that we have turned bad, that we've all chosen to define good and evil for ourselves, and so we all contribute to this world of broken relationships, leading to conflict and violence and ultimately death. But there's hope. God promised that one day a descendant would come, the wounded victor who will defeat evil at its source. And so despite humanity's evil, God is determined to bless and rescue his world. And so the big question, of course, is what is God going to do? And the next story, The Hinge, offers the answer. So you look at that, they just explain their motivations of how they are trying to explain Genesis 1 through 11. And uh, that explains why they're wording the stories in the way in which they're wording them, because they're trying to point to this grand narrative. Uh, look how they talk about God, though. God's allowing choice. God's doing things which don't uh, result in the consequences that one would expect. God creates the world to cleanse it, and then it falls into destruction again. They really don't want to talk about God and God's motivations when it comes to these stories, what he was thinking, and, and how this plays into their attributes that they want to assign God. They, they just don't because it uh, fundamentally contradicts their view of God. God can't try things and then those things fail. God can't try to reach humanity and then humanity fails. If God knows God, the humanity is going to fail in that way, it's not a legitimate reaching out, is it? It's not God trying things and then human beings failing. It's God knowing things are going to fail and then forcing those things anyways. It's a bad narrative. And so they don't talk about God in that fashion. They want to uh, put that in a pocket. They want to put that to the side and not think about how that plays into the narrative they're spinning. But they do have a grand narrative. They think that the Bible is all, the entire point of the Bible, all the stories in the Bible, all the details of that story are pointing to Jesus. And so the snake incident must be reimagined to be a prophecy about Jesus specifically. Uh, the entire narrative of the flood must be the, the fall, fall of even uh, Noah after the flood where he gets drunk and then there's this weird incident with his uh, son. That must also be pointing to this grand narrative. Maybe, maybe not. Um, I, I don't think, if you're reading Genesis honestly, that you could get the idea that God has this grand narrative for all of humankind from the beginning in which uh, there's going to be necessarily a savior that's going to come and that uh, God knew that man's going to fall so that he's going to rise up these different things to try and, and know it's going to fall to eventually lead to Jesus and redemption of the whole world. I, I don't think you could get that from reading this specifically, especially when God regrets making all of mankind and as a result of his regret destroys the world. God seems to be over with the world until he discovers Noah. Noah Noah seems to be a, a side thought which God says, okay, I'm not going to destroy this righteous person. So I think it's interesting to see how people explain the Bible, what details that they focus on, which details they don't focus on, and the narrative they're trying to present, and the motivations for those narratives. I think we see them here. Uh, the, the reality can't be a failed experiment that God then redeemed, I found a way to redeem his failed experiment. It has to be 
a grand narrative playing out to an ultimate end and all the the points in the narrative are planned to function exactly as God planned until that uh, climax, until the resolution of that narrative. And we see that play out in their description of these events. I, I don't think that uh, Calvinists would have a lot more trouble doing a series like this than a normal Arminian because their views of God are a lot more divergent from the biblical God. At least Arminians believe that God typically can think or have reactions, have emotions, uh, react to the world, doesn't control the world in detail. They just think that God operates from this place of knowledge of all future events, which, which causes a lot of problems in how they describe the text, but not as much, not as much as thinking God is timeless and perfectly simple and, and immutable and controlling all things. Those introduce a lot more problems to reading the Bible. And so try that with your Calvinist friends. Uh, just say, can you give me the plot of Genesis or or uh, the first half of the Bible or the second half of the Bible in a way in which God is presented as immutable, timeless, and uh, totally omniscient of all future events that are ever going to happen. See if they can't do that challenge. If they start talking about, oh, then God created. Well, that's a time-bound action. That's a change in God. If God creates, God has changed. They can't do it. They can't describe the Bible with their views of God in mind. The two texts, uh, the, the, the text of the Bible and their theology are just so divergent, they, there's no overlap. Anyways, questions, comments, put that below. Uh, thank you for listening. Uh, start a thread on the God is Open Facebook group if uh, you want to talk about some of these issues. It will be fun. Thank you.